because we see imperfectly in mortality. Not everything is going to make sense right now. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. Whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Welcome back. This is the To Whom Shall We Go podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sorensen. For today's guest, we have Brian Whitney joining us. Thanks so much for being on, Brian. Thanks for inviting me. So to get us started, could you give us a little bit of your background and tell us about your story? Sure. So, I mean, I suppose I can start back with my childhood. Um, I was uh, raised out in Washington State and mostly kind of around the suburbs of Seattle area. Um, My family goes back uh, generations in the Seattle area, actually to its founding. Um, my family was not a Latter-day Saint family. I still isn't. Um, my, uh, grandfather came from a Presbyterian background. And in fact, my great, great grandfather was a Presbyterian minister, uh, during the Yukon gold rush, which, um, Washington state was, you know, because it's a Northern state was kind of a gateway to the Yukon gold rush in Canada and Alaska. Um, so yeah, he was a Presbyterian minister, um, for that. And then on my other side of the family, um, it was a Mennonite, uh, from Pennsylvania who came out to Seattle as a lumberjack and cleared the forest, um, that Seattle is built on. Um, so that's really my religious background with my family. Um, when I was a kid, I remember going to Presbyterian services, uh, with my grandpa. And when I was 11, um, my mom, um, through some neighbors got referred to Latter-day Saint missionaries and took the discussions and she decided to join the church and I joined along with her. Um, it was, we were living in low income apartments. We were very poor. Uh, she was a single mother. Um, she and my father had divorced when I was two. And, uh, so she was really struggling, um, to survive and I think that what she saw with the church was a support system. Um, she also has a, a mental disability. And um, so I don't know that she really uh, comprehended in, in depth the discussions um, that she got as far as just like, uh, I don't know, the, the differences between Presbyterianism and, um, you know, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, or the restoration. Um, I don't know that she would have ever been able to really articulate what the restoration was. Um, but she definitely felt um, welcomed by church members and she felt that it was a home uh, for her. And so we were both baptized um, again when I was 11. And and I remember that um, it was the missionaries who baptized us. And I remember that uh, there was just a few people at our baptism. Um, and my grandpa actually came, um, and, and, and he was, he was very, uh, he was happy to see that we were joining a church community that was going to be supportive and take care of us. He, even though he himself was a Presbyterian, he didn't have any negative feelings 
towards the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so um, I just remember that he was um, congratulatory uh, to us. Um, so anyway, we were only active for a few years. Um, by the time that I was 13, uh, we decided to move to another town uh, that was closer to where my aunt and uncle lived. And uh, for whatever reason, my mom just stopped going to church. Um, she didn't have any animosity towards the church. She didn't have any hard feelings, no faith crisis, anything like that. I think it was just because her support system shifted to her sister. Um, so she didn't, I don't think she felt like she needed the support system of the church as much at that point. Um, I, I, I should point out jumping to today, my mother is a fully active member of the church now and, um, and really loves being a part of the church. But at that time she had just slid, slid away. Um, so my teenage years, uh, I, we weren't really attending any specific church. Um, the town that we'd moved to, uh, was across the Bay from Seattle. It's a town called Port Orchard, Washington. And there was a lot of evangelical churches there, a lot of, uh, sort of non-denominational, um, churches. And so a lot of my friends that I made in high school came from the non-denominational sort of born again, Christian background. And so they invited me to go to youth group with them to church with them. And, uh, and I ended up, um, becoming a born again Christian when I was, uh, probably about 16, 17 around there. Um, at the time, um, I was really struggling with life. I was, um, I was failing out of school. I had failed all of 10th grade and I had failed all of 11th grade. Um, I was a, um, I was hanging around kids who were a bad influence. I was doing all the, the stuff that, you know, that you worry about kids doing. Um, I'd even spent, um, a couple days in juvenile detention for, um, for stealing. And, uh, you know, I was drinking, I was doing all the, all the stuff that was down the wrong path. And, uh, and I didn't know where my life was, was going to head. And so I went to, um, there was this, uh, evangelical revival meeting, I guess you can call it, um, on our school campus and, and campus ministries was kind of a big thing still is. So this campus ministries event, um, in our high school auditorium, um, I remember I was sitting way in the back of the auditorium and they were sermonizing. They were preaching like, you know, like, I mean, it really feels now that I've gone through a bunch of like historical, uh, education. It really felt like one of those old revival meetings that probably Joseph Smith attended. Um, but it, you know, it, it hit me and I felt called, uh, to it. And so they did an altar call during the service where you would go up and you would receive Christ as your savior and you would repent of your sins and confess, uh, through the sinner's prayer. And they would, uh, basically lay their hands on you and, 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 uh, and pray over you and you would become born again. Right. So it wasn't quite baptism, but it was kind of a baptism of the spirit, baptism of fire. Right. And so I did that. I went up there and, and, uh, prayed the sinner's prayer and accepted the Lord in my life and asked God to turn my life around. And that was really the first step. 
of me sort of getting my act together. Um, I felt at that point, I felt real uh, connection with reading scripture. Like the Bible became alive to me. Um, the words just sort of started coming out off the page and making sense. And I started receiving promptings that were from the Holy Spirit. Um, and the promptings were telling me very clearly to, you need to erase the negative influences in your life. You need to stop hanging out with the negative influences and you need to stop doing the things that are leading you to a path of destruction. And, uh, and you need to get back in school. Cause at this point I was, I wasn't even attending school. Um, and so I made that decision. I did. I, I told the, the friends I was hanging out with, I can't hang out with you anymore. And, uh, they asked why. And I said, because God told me not to, <laughs> um, that went over well. <laughs> um, but it was the truth. I had felt convicted from the spirit that I could not be in their presence anymore. And, um, and things just started slowly churning around for me at that point. Um, I made a decision when I was 18 to move in with my aunt and uncle who had a much more stable life than um, the life that I'd had. And I knew that they could help keep me on the path to actually finishing high school and, you know, getting a, a driver's license, all the things that I wasn't accomplishing. Um, and they did, they were, they, they provided structure in my life that I needed. They provided boundaries that I needed and, um, and guidance and just seeing their example of being um, functioning adults who were responsible in their lives uh, was um, a big inspiration for me. So I ended up my senior year of high school, I ended up a straight A honor student. Um, and then after that, I had to continue to uh, get credits done that I had failed out on. So I ended up being a super senior, graduated when I was like 19, 19 and a half, um, while my friends were off, you know, so you're joining the military, getting married, starting their careers. Um, I was still in high school, um, but, you know, uh, but I did it. So let's see, during this time and shortly after high school, I started um, hanging out at this Christian youth center uh, that was, it was a coffee house that was near our high school. Um, and it was run by a hippie Christian couple who wanted to create a safe space for uh, youth to hang out in a uh, place that, you know, wouldn't, they wouldn't get in as much trouble. And they wanted to, to make it attractive to youth. They had, you know, they had like arcade games in there and they had pool tables and they made grilled cheese sandwiches. And of course it was a coffee house. So they had coffee and they had, um, they had a, a room with a stage and stuff. And so they started bringing in live bands on the weekends. And so they asked me if I wanted to help promote some of the shows, um, of the live bands that they're bringing in. And this is the nineties. This is like the early nineties. So like grunge was really big. And of course this is just right outside of Seattle. Right. So grunge and like, you know, hard rock and punk rock and hardcore metal and all that kind of stuff. They were booking those kind of bands, but with the caveat that they were all Christians. Right. So these were like, Christians in punk rock bands and Christians in grunge bands and Christians in heavy metal bands. Um, and, uh, 
And so I started getting to know these guys. Right. And for a lot of people, when they hear that, like, how can somebody be punk rock and Christian, but it was a thing. And, um, and so I started hanging out with all of these like Christian band guys and got to know them. And then the scene kind of blew up, um, musically in Seattle. And so, you know, everybody was, seemed like everybody and their mom was in a band at one point. And, uh, and so this record label um, that specialized in Christian alternative music moved from California and moved their headquarters up to Seattle. And I went over and started working for them. And a lot of the bands that I was hanging out with doing promotion, a lot of them were on that record label. Um, it was called Tooth and Nail Records. And so I started working in just in their mail order room. Um, this is like pre-internet days. So back then, if you wanted to get a CD, or a cassette tape, you had to physically call in or like physically mail in a little order slip. And so I was in their um, mail room for a while until, um, until I got a different job in Seattle. But, but I, so I moved over to Seattle working for this punk rock Christian record label and living with all of these like punk rock guys in this like house in near the university of Washington. And so it was kind of like this, like, alternative Christian punk rock dream in a way. Right. And I got really into the whole music scene out there. Um, and it was cool. Um, but our lifestyle, the lives that we were living weren't very exemplary. Um, we were in our early twenties. So we were partying just like any other non-Christian was during that time. You know, and a lot of us, I think um, a lot of the kids that were in the bands and stuff were like kids who grew up in Christian homes, um, but they didn't really have like a lot of convictions themselves, you know, so they get out on their own and they're now these, these touring bands and artists and all that, and they're going to, um, they're going to fall and slip away from, from the standards of their faith as much as anybody. And so it was actually a pretty wild time. And, uh, and I, and I definitely sort of fell back into a lot of the old habits that I had, uh, that I had been living. Um, so during this time of living in Seattle and it's kind of a crazy lifestyle, a lot of, a lot of, uh, punk rock concerts and hanging out and partying and stuff. I meet this girl at one of the concerts um, and she's a Latter-day Saint and we start talking and, uh, we were at a, a party that was after a concert and I was, um, at this point, a few drinks into the conversation. So I was probably not the most lucid. <laughs> um, and, and, she, and when she mentioned that she was a Latter-day Saint, I, I said, Oh, well, so am I. <laughs> And she was like, well, that's, you know, obvious. I can, I can smell it on your breath. Um, but we ended up starting to date and, uh, by about our third date, this was like taking her out to like, you know, for like, to like cocktail restaurants and stuff like that. It's like, just, I'm just like completely oblivious to the fact that this is just not the life that she lives. Um, so by about the third day, she kind of just puts it down on the line and says, look, you know, um, I enjoy you and I enjoy dating and stuff, but you know, if, uh, if you want to continue dating, then you're going to need to return to the church and you're going to need to live the standards. Um, 
of the church and things like that. And, uh, and I really liked her. Um, and I thought, you know, it probably wouldn't be a bad idea for me to straighten up my life and to, and, and to, you know, to go to return to church and stuff. So I did. Um, and we were in a singles ward out at the university of Washington. And, uh, it seemed like it was like just overnight that I just changed my life around again and just gave up all the, the stuff that I was doing. All my friends were just like, what the heck? Um, like not even coffee, you know, like it just was like, everything just dropped. And, uh, and we ended up getting married, um, about a year and a half later, um, uh, getting married in the Seattle temple actually. Um, and, uh, a couple years after that, maybe, um, I ended up getting called into the bishopric of our family ward, um, which was super crazy because, I mean, I really had, besides my youth for a few years, I really had no background in the church um, to speak of. Um, so at this point, I'd only been active really for about a year or two. And I'd never served a mission. I'd never been to, you know, BYU. I'd never even visited Utah or anything like that. And all of a sudden I'm in a bishopric. Um but it, but it was a, a really wonderful experience. Um, we served for four and a half years because the bishop had, had uh, he was, he had replaced me with counselors that had moved. Um, so he was, he was in for quite a while longer. Um, but we, yeah, so I served with him for four and a half years and it was a life-changing experience. Um, we, there are boundaries that we had were covering um, Seattle's Capitol Hill area, which is sort of known as like the gay neighborhood of Seattle. Um, so a lot of, um, a lot of LGBT, uh, Q members that were, um, you know, by and large, mostly non-active. Um, and it was a very diverse ward. I mean, we did have some openly gay members attending, um, the ward. We had probably about a half dozen and we had, um, you know, a few lesbian members, and we had a couple of transgendered uh, individuals. Um, and it was, you know, I mean, it's Seattle, so it's a pretty liberal ward. Um, a lot of university professors and things like that. Um, but it was, it was a marvelous experience in that it really, um, it really taught me to just throw my arms around everybody, regardless of who they were or where they came from or what their politics were their sexual orientation or anything like that. It just didn't matter. Right. It was just about loving people and about welcoming them and about trying to do what you could to serve them. And so we spent a lot of time. Our Bishop was very adamant about spending more time out on the streets than in meetings. He was an excellent Bishop. Um, and so we would go out ministering, um, to less active members and non-active members in the Capitol Hill area who many of them felt marginalized by the church, felt that they weren't welcome. And we would just throw our arms around them and just love them. And, um, and some of them did end up coming back to church. Um, it, was, it was a great experience. We also were the welfare assigned ward too. So, and also the uh, the ward assigned to the county jail too. So we had our work cut out for us. Um, and we were spending a lot of time with people who were battling with addiction and um, homelessness. Um, since we were the welfare ward, we had a lot of homeless um, folks that, that we were in charge of. And um, I, just, I just remember spending a lot of evenings 
um, out in Seattle, just like getting people into shelters, getting them into temporary housing, getting single, you know, single mothers who are homeless into like temporary housing and stuff like that. Um, so I think that really formed in my mind what the gospel was really all about and what the power of, of faith and community combined can do in people's lives. So maybe I'll stop there and see where you want to go from. Yeah. So, so you're right there. You're in your bishopric. You're, you're having these great experiences here. Um, how did that lead into you going into your faith crisis? Yeah. So the faith crisis didn't happen until after I'd been released from the bishopric, but, and it really, um, sparked from, um, getting a divorce. Um, so in 2008, uh, which was about two years, maybe after I'd been released, um, my wife and I divorced and, uh, my life just turned upside down. Um, 2008 was a really bad year for the economy. Right. And so my job um, had really, I, I wasn't making any money. Um, and then my marriage collapsed and then my faith collapsed. Right. So it was like this trifecta of, um, of all three things and, uh, and trying to piece things back together um, in my life, not, not my faith at this time, but just trying to piece things back together in my life and try to find some stability in my life. I started probably um, digging in and researching stuff, um, like just asking, like, what do I believe about things? And, you know, um, do I really want to continue uh, in the church? Um, and at that point, I didn't have like any specific issues with the church. It was more just the culture in general, do I want to continue participating in the culture of the church as a single divorced man? Right. Which I think is very tough um, for divorcees to feel um, some, I wouldn't say to feel welcome, but to feel, uh, I don't know, like you're a full participant when you're divorced. I think you kind of feel a bit of like a social pariah. Right. And it's, it's nobody's fault. It isn't like, it isn't like members are purposefully shaming you or anything. It's more internal than anything else, but okay. So I started, I remember it was actually a PBS documentary that I just happened to wander up upon um, that sort of kickstarted all my questions. And it, and the PBS documentary wasn't even about the church. It was about the historical Jesus. Um, and it was, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the, the Jesus seminar um, people, but it's scholars, basically. These are like, religious scholars who, um, who are, who basically try to like find cultural evidence of the historical Jesus and place Jesus into his social and historical context. And then oftentimes they end up doing more of, of sort of biblical criticism, right. And pointing out the error, not just the errors, but like the contradictions and things like that within biblical sources. Um, and questioning the roots of these sources and stuff like that, which I mean, you know, isn't, it's not like that's a terrible exercise in of itself to become 
uh, more aware of biblical sources and how they interact with each other and stuff like that. But definitely there's this um, secularization of Jesus that can happen um, with that. And so that was really the first thing that sort of shook me um, and, and made me start questioning if the New Testament gospels were really accurate witnesses of Jesus Christ, or if they were um, sort of propaganda, right? Religious pop propaganda uh, created by later followers who never personally knew this Jesus from Nazareth. Um, all of these types of questions start turning in. Did the resurrection really happen? Or was Jesus just sort of a martyr for the cause? Um, and, you know, was he like any other um, sort of apocalyptic preacher of the time? Or was there something really significant about him? Did he, did he get executed by Rome and, and that's it? That's the end of his physical story or his mortal story. And then these later stories emerge. So from that, that springboarded me into looking at the teachings of the church with more skepticism. And, uh, and I, and I remember, um, I'm trying to think of the first thing that I really came across, but I think it was probably the, the issues that, that many of us find with the book of Mormon. Um, and, you know, seeing first of all, how much quotation the book of Mormon pulls from biblical sources and particularly biblical sources from the new Testament, which would have been way after the time of, um, the Book of Mormon people in America, stuff like that started troubling me. Um, the anachronisms in the Book of Mormon, stuff like that started um, weighing on me heavily. And I think that uh, I got to a point where I just didn't, I couldn't say that I had any real faith um, either in the restoration or in really the, the divine claims of, of Christianity. Um, so I remember Googling, um, cause I still wanted to attend church at this point. Like I socially wanted to be part of it. And I remember Googling, um, the phrase non-believing active Latter-day Saint. I wanted to see if there was like any resources out there for those, for people who had lost their faith, but who still desired to be active. And I came across a website called stay LDS. I don't think it's in existence anymore. I hope it's not. Um, but this website was created by John DeLynn. Um, a lot of listeners are probably familiar with who he is. And it was set up as a resource page that basically just linked you to different uh, group discussion boards where you could go in and anonymously discuss the questions that you have and the issues that you have with faith at that point. And, and he had a few articles in there about being a nuanced believer and seeking the middle way and stuff like that. This was back when John DeLynn was actually an active member of the church and he was trying to carve out a middle way path for himself. Um, he disavowed that website years later, and that's why I don't think it's in existence anymore. Um, so there was one group forum on there uh, called New Order Mormon that I became part of. And this is back before like Facebook groups existed. Um, so everything was just like these discussion boards that are almost like Reddit threads in a way. And, um, you would just go in under an anonymous name and 
uh, we would have these lengthy conversations. And so that really started introducing me to a lot of the other potential issues within the church. Um, you know, historical stuff about book of Abraham, the connection between Mormonism and Freemasonry, the historical issues surrounding polygamy, the method of translation, all of these things that are, you know, basically your checklist items, right. For anybody who's, who's ever dived into the stuff or read like the CES letter, this was years and years before the CES letter ever came out. Um, but that was sort of the goal of the group was actually to, to try to create a space where people could still feel comfortable attending the church, even if they didn't feel that they could um, strongly state their belief in it. Right. And it was, and it was trying to create a space where people could um, salvage their relationships with their family and their loved ones while still attending church quietly um, as a non-believer. Um, I don't know that that's a fantastic goal, but um, that's, I think at some point, everybody is going to have to make a decision on where they stand, right? I mean, you can coast for so long on that before you finally hit a wall and say, okay, I'm either, I'm either in or I'm out. Um, so that's, that's what I participated in for a while. Then Facebook groups started getting popular. So I started participating in a bunch of different Facebook groups. Um, I gotten remarried uh, 2009. I got remarried to another Latter-day Saint girl. And uh, so we were attending church and we had actually set a goal to be sealed in the temple. We'd been married civilly and then set a goal to be sealed in the temple and to have uh, the children that she brought with her from her previous marriage to have them sealed to us as well. Um, so while I'm going through this whole deconstruction of my belief and participating in these online forums, I'm also working towards trying to get a sealing clearance um, in the temple and have the, the children sealed to us. So it's a real polarizing experience for me at that time. Um, so, you know, I did end up uh, a year later, we were sealed um, in the Seattle temple. And then a year after that, we had this children sealed to us. So I did end up sticking to my promises that, uh, that I said that I would do, but the whole time that I did that, I was, I was riddled with doubt. Um, you know, I just wasn't very open about it. Um, I didn't want to, I didn't want to do anything that could curtail the goals that, that we'd had. Um, and so I just kept my concerns and doubts to myself. I do remember sitting down with, I was honest with my wife that I had some doubts and, um, I remember sitting down with her and we watched another PBS documentary called, uh, what was it? it was just called the Mormons. Actually, it was, it was put out by PBS frontline. Um, oh, I can't remember when it was, must've been 2006, 2005, something like that. Um, at any rate, it was, uh, it was a fairly balanced documentary. Um, it had a lot of scholars in there like Richard Bushman, uh, Terrell Givens was interviewed a lot in there. Daniel Peterson from um, the Fair Mormon uh, Foundation. And, um, but then they also had skeptics in there as well. And I thought that they did a pretty good job of balancing um, most of the, the topics, but it was still enough to, um, to be able to have a discussion with my wife to say, these are the things that I struggle with. 
right? Um, so even though the presentation of it wasn't trying to be too damning, um, it was still enough to, to say these are real concerns that I have. And, uh, and at the end of the, um, it was a four-part documentary at the end of the four parts. I just remember her saying, she just like looked white. Her color had left her face and she was just like, so what does this mean? Like, I feel like you just told me that Santa Claus isn't real, <laughs> you know? So what is this? Are we going to get sealed? Are we going to have the children sealed to us? Like, what does this mean for all of our plans? And I, and I just told her, I, I commit to living a, a life in the church. I commit to um, to, to be being sealed to you. I commit to having the children sealed to us, but I just need to be honest with you as to where I am and the, the real, very real concerns that I have. Um, so we made the decision, uh, in 2011 to move to Utah. Um, I wanted to go back to school. My career wasn't working out for me and I wanted to go back to school and all the historical stuff that I had gotten involved in sort of inspired me um, to uh, realizing that I had an aptitude for history and that I enjoyed it. And I thought I'm going to pursue this professionally. Um, and so I went, uh, I applied around to different schools and then we had some family out uh, in Utah and Weber State University um, offered me a really good scholarship. And so I took it. And um, we moved out in uh, the fall of 2011, and I started school in 2012. Um, and that was a really good experience, um, getting in the history department there. Um, and within my first, first sem uh, semester, I think, maybe it was a second semester. Um, yeah, it was a second semester. They had offered me an internship with the church history department um, through the school. And so I took it and I went down to the church history department, um, originally started working just as a footnote source verifier on the first 50 years of Relief Society volume that was published a few years ago. Um, so I was just fact checking uh, the footnotes, looking up old newspapers and microfilm and stuff and just making sure that the footnote actually was correct to where it was pointing to and the page numbers were correct and that the the topic was correct and stuff like that and i was able to catch a few errors here and there and you know make things fix things before they got published um well then after we finished with that project the director of publications for the church history department matthew grow asked me if i would like to stay on to help him with his own book that he was publishing um that was a um uh, documentary history of the letters and the correspondence between Brigham Young and Thomas Kane. Thomas Kane was a non-Latter-day Saint who was a supporter of the Latter-day Saints. He was a politician and um, Civil War veteran who supported the Latter-day Saints in their migration to Utah and tried to help the Latter-day Saints um, to create a territory where they had their own religious freedom and things like that. So, um, so they had correspondence uh, from Brigham Young and Thomas Kane that started as early as 1847 and went all the way until Brigham Young's death in 1876. So all of these letters back and forth that really gives a lot of insight into sort of the political environment um, of Utah under Brigham Young's governorship and uh, many of the major historical events. So, of course, I took the opportunity. It was a paid internship. 
Um, and I ended up working on that for the next like year and a half. And that book is now published by Oxford University Press. Um, but getting to know all of these historians in the church history department, because I was there with like the Joseph Smith Papers um, team. And also at this time, uh, they were just starting to publish, put together the gospel topics essays. And so I got to participate in the production of some of the gospel topics essays, um, contributed a little bit of research to one of them, just like a paragraph of research to one of them on 19th century violence um, in the religious and the frontier uh, era. And then um, I also accumulated some sources and stuff like that for like the one on the book of Abraham essay. Um, but I was getting really actively involved with different historical associations, uh, the Mormon History Association and other historical associations and uh, becoming just a, a part of the whole scholarly community. Um, it was a, it, and it was really a good experience. I was, I was very active in my ward. I was, um, uh, you know, enjoying my time at school. I was enjoying my time interning with the church history department. Uh, so even though I still carried a lot of doubts with me and a lot of questions, um, I was able to work through a, a lot of them, at least the historical questions and not necessarily to give me like, you know, a bulletproof answer on a lot of them, but I was able to see that there was, there really wasn't any specific smoking gun, like the critics would like to say that just proves the church wrong, right? That, that there was, sure, there's a lot of things that a person could point to one by one and say, well, that's, you know, that's distressing and that, that, uh, you know, um, should raise some concern and those types of things are there. But I think that by working with the historical team of the church and just seeing like how open they were about these things, how open they were about conversations about these things. I'll just give you one example. Um, so I had, uh, at the time, uh, Elder Stephen Snow was the church historian. Um, great guy, wonderful guy. And, and I remember I was doing some research on, um, this is actually when I was still on the uh, footnote team for the Relief Society. Uh, and I remember I was um, doing some research on one of the early Relief Society organizations in, I think it was the Parowan stake of Utah. And this is the 1850s, like 1856 or something like that. And I was, and, and we were in like meeting minutes. I was looking at meeting minutes of these Relief Society um, sisters. And one of them had commented how they were going to put together this social event. And they said that sister so-and-so Sister Jones, let's just call her. I don't remember who it was. Sister Jones is going to bring the beer, and and it and she wasn't talking about root beer. <laughs> um, they said that she had the best recipe for it, right? And and I thought it was I thought it was amusing, um, but it opened up a conversation, a rather candid conversation with our church historian about the role of the word of wisdom in the church at the time, and how the word of wisdom. Um, has changed over time. The emphasis has has changed over time. So, like at the time, fermented drinks were not seen in the same category as distilled drinks. 
that distilled drinks, the hard drinks, which is specifically whiskey, rum, tequila, uh, were seen as the worst evil in that um, fermented drinks like beer and wine were seen as a as more tolerable. Um, and and so and that's even emphasized in section 86 uh, of the word of wisdom that mild drinks made of barley are good for man right there they're actually they are talking about beer and that was our that that was the the laughter that we got from that it was realizing that the mild drinks are made of barley is beer and elder snow said yep that's what it was <laughs> you know it's just uh, and, and you have to place into its historical context right um but being able to have those open conversations without fear of shaming um, and without defensiveness, right? Without fear of being, of feeling like I'm just going to get shot down really helped me work through a lot of the issues that I have. Now, we weren't necessarily talking about the content of the book of Abraham per se, but we were definitely talking a lot about the social influences that um, Joseph Smith would have uh, been inspired by and would have been moved by and would have influenced him and in how he uh, how he communicated revelation, how he communicated um, the doctrines of the church and things like that. Um, and so it just humanized everything for me in a way that I think sometimes we tend to think that lightning strikes in a bottle, right? And that um, and that all of these things happened completely outside of any sort of social context or influence. And so going through this process of working with historians who most of them were, you know, PhD historians, um, and seeing their process of working through things and working through records and seeing how they didn't necessarily lead with a conclusion in mind, but let the evidence sort of direct them. But seeing that even through that, even though they were utilizing the best historical methods that I that 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 I've seen, that they still were able to maintain their faith. Right, that that looking at the evidence closely didn't lead them away from their faith. Um, Was there anything like in particular that you noticed about like what these how these faithful Latter Day Saints looked into history, like? Anything maybe about like their paradigm or just their approach that stood yeah. out? Yeah, yeah. I think I think a uh, and I think a paradigm is a good is is a good word for it um, because I think that in the end their paradigm was such that they had a faith and a knowledge that the restored gospel was true, and so they didn't feel threatened by the records, by the recorded material in history, because they felt certain enough that whatever the issues that they're seeing that are troublesome today, that something will help them understand that better, right? That um, they had enough faith to know that things have a way of working out when you keep looking and keep looking and keep looking, that they have a way of working out right? The things that look like wrinkles right now. In fact, Elder Snow, I think, put it best. Um, and he said this to me directly, but he's also said this publicly, so I can share it. Um, he said, he looks at church history sort of as a tapestry. 
when you look really, when you take a magnifying glass on a tapestry and you look at each individual thread individually, you might see some threads that look a bit odd. You might see some that seem out of place. You might see some, see some that, that don't quite fit. But then when you take a step back and you look at the whole picture together and you see how all of these threads intertwine and combine to create this, this magnificent picture in front of you, right? That's, it's a lovely picture. And that, I think that par that's a paradigm, right? And, and I think that really influenced me um, being able to take that step back and look at it as a whole and not, and, and not just focusing on the parts right now, as a historical researcher, that's exactly what you're doing is you're focusing on the parts, right? You have to spend all of your time on the little micro threads to try to see where they lead, to try to put things together. And that's how history is constructed. And it's really easy to get mired by that. It's really easy to just get kind of stuck in the weeds, so to speak. But once in a while, you have to remove yourself from that. And you need to take a step back and you need to look at the whole picture and see how glorious the whole thing is, right? I mean, we have a faith that has been built off of, of, of human struggle in, in, in many ways, right? It's a, a, a lot, nobody, there's no perfect person in the church who has done things absolutely right the whole way through. It's, it's all been humans fumbling their way through and, and trying to find a connection with God, right? Um, and then when you look at what's been accomplished, despite human failings, you look at what's been accomplished and it's inspiring. And that's how you know that the Lord is in charge, right? So I think that paradigm was extremely important is knowing when to take a step back and when to look at the bigger picture as opposed to getting caught up in the minutia and in the weeds. Yeah, I, I appreciate you bringing that up. And I love that kind of that image from Elder Snow that you gave us. Um, I think with all this, like there's definitely, there's some difficult issues and stuff, but I think it's super important that we all remember just the fruit tastes good. Like the gospel of Jesus Christ, the restoration has these, these gems. Um, and sometimes when I, when I kind of am struggling, sometimes just taking a look back on some of those, those restored gems and how beautiful they are. That can definitely, that definitely helps me a lot. Yeah. There was a, um, an article published and I think it was from a talk that was given uh, at, I want to say it was a fair Mormon conference and I don't remember who gave the talk, um, but it was, it was titled. Um, I don't have a testimony of the history of the church. And, and, and this is from a scholar uh, who was giving this and his argument was he has a testimony of Jesus Christ. He has a testimony of prophetic leadership. He has a testimony of the restoration of the gospel he does not have a testimony of all the details of the history of the church that can be picked apart. And to place your testimony on that is to place your testimony in the wrong area 
right, is to place your testimony on the failings uh, of of humanity. And and every time you place your faith on a on a man, they're going to let you down. They're going to disappoint you because we're humans. You will always be able to find flaws. Um, but when you place your faith and your testimony in the Savior and in Heavenly Father and His plan for His children, um, and you look forward instead of backwards, right? That's the infallible uh, place that your testimony needs to be. I love that. Um, we probably have about three or four minutes left for the interview, but the last question that I wanted to go over with you is what does the gospel of Jesus Christ mean to you, Brian? I think the gospel of Jesus Christ really means transformation um, to me. Um, you know, it is, it's so easy to just get caught up in ourselves and get caught up in our own problems and issues. Um, you know, I didn't, we haven't had enough time, but I didn't even get into like my social issues that I've, that I've had that have also challenged me besides just like historical issues, but stuff like, you know, I, I have a son from my previous marriage who came out as gay and that was a big challenge to me. Um, and, and to my, I wouldn't say my faith, but my desire to affiliate with the church was really challenged by, um, feeling like I had to make a decision between um, supporting my son and the church. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've found ways to work through that, I think. <laughs> um, but I found a peace, I should say. I have found a peace. And that peace really comes down to, um, I believe anyway, that, that um, my son's coming out was a blessing in my life because it challenged me to love more. And that's, and that to me is the transformative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It challenges us to get past our own issues and our own uh, sort of narcissism and self-indulgence and challenges us to truly love more and to love um, even those who, I mean, it's easy to love my son. He's my son, right? It's not so easy to love somebody who you don't even like and to be able to have your heart transformed where you feel that love for somebody who you don't even care for. That's the kind of love that can heal our world. And that's to me is what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. When we get to the point as humanity, where we truly deeply care about others beyond ourselves regardless of who they are, regardless of their religious background, regardless of their sexual orientation, regardless of their political leanings, when we truly, truly see them for who they are as children of God, and we truly love them as our brothers and our sisters, then miracles happen. And, um, and it's in that miracle that Christ is present, right? And that to me is, is what the gospel means. I love that, Brian. Thank you for sharing that. I could definitely, I could definitely feel the spirit as you you talked about that. And I love how, regardless of what happens in life, regardless of what those around us choose to do, I think as we turn to Christ, 
he can make it a good situation. He can teach us lessons from whatever happens around us. Absolutely. Yep. And that to me is the path of discipleship, right? And that's, you know, when we talk about being a covenant people, I think that that's really what we're talking about is we are, we are covenanting to transform our lives and covenanting to transform ourselves into the kind of people that God wants us to be. Yeah, I love that. And I know some of our listeners probably aren't going through a faith crisis, but probably have a loved one that's going through a faith crisis and is struggling. And I think one of the biggest things you can do is just love the heck out of them. Absolutely. Have empathy, right? Try to put yourself into their shoes and, yeah. and truly understand the, um, the, what they must be feeling, right? Going from a place where they felt certain about so many things to a place where they feel uncertain about everything, Yeah, uh, where they feel that they, I mean, they probably don't want to hurt you, right? They, and so they, they might be really reluctant to, to say anything because they don't want to hurt you, but just showing that love and that care and that concern for them um, goes a long way into healing those relationships. Because in my opinion, and in my personal experience, uh, going through a faith crisis, um, it's, it requires healing. It requires the healer's touch, right? Um, it doesn't always require answers. It doesn't necessarily require the best apologetics to, 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 you know, to resolve our issues. It requires a more spiritual response. And, and that can only come from love, from compassion, from um, tenderness, from, um, from, from just being there for them, right? And allowing the spirit to do its work with them. Yeah, that's just so beautiful. And just remembering, we love these people, but our heavenly father and our heavenly mother, they love them even more than we do. And they have a plan and they'll give them the best opportunity possible to progress and to move forward. Thank you so much for being on, Brian. All right. Well, thank you for having me. This has been the To Whom Shall We Go podcast. We'll see you next time.